Hey there, this is Amanda Kuda, and today we'll be mapping elective sobriety on the 15-minute matrix. Welcome to the 15-Minute Matrix. I'm Andrea Nakayama, functional medicine nutritionist and your host. This is the podcast that brings you bite-sized insights and lessons on the clinical relevance of the functional nutrition matrix, the most important tool in functional medicine and functional nutrition. The matrix is so important not only because it invites us to stop and assess, but also because it reminds us of three very important factors in our care, our recommendations, and our outcomes. Everything is connected, we are all unique, and all things matter. Be sure to head over to this episode's show notes at 15minutematrix.com if you'd like to see today's topic mapped on a downloadable matrix to remind you of these critical aspects of care. Today on the 15-Minute Matrix, I'll be speaking with Amanda Kuda. Amanda is an alcohol-free lifestyle expert. She's a holistic life coach, speaker, and author living, working, and playing in Austin, Texas. As a coach, Amanda helps ambitious, soul-centered women stop drinking and start manifesting the life they deserve and desire. She teaches a modern approach to personal development, self-actualization, and spiritual enlightenment through the lens of elective sobriety. Amanda is currently under contract with Penguin Random House imprint Avery to publish her first book, which I truly cannot wait to read. Hi, Amanda. Welcome to the 15-Minute Matrix. Hi there. I'm so excited to be here today. So elective sobriety. I feel like I've chosen this path without even realizing I chose it. (laughs) Can you start us off by explaining what elective sobriety actually is? Yes, absolutely. So elective sobriety is sobriety by choice. It is not the traditional path that we're taught where um, if you decide to quit drinking, it's because of some rock bottom, some addiction, or some dependency that you have on alcohol. It is, hey, I want to live a better life. I know that alcohol is not helping me do that. So I'm going to elect to become sober just for the health of it and for the possibility of achieving my truest potential. Yeah, amazing. What are the typical reasons that you find clients or even for yourself, if you're willing to share, you decided to go this route? Yeah. You know, for me specifically, and I think most of my clients reflect this, I knew that I was not living my best life despite that I was presenting as living my best life on the outside. Emotionally, I felt lackluster. Professionally, I knew that I was achieving, but I felt like I was meant for more. In my relationships, I felt like I wasn't as connected and as vulnerable as I wanted to be. Spiritually, I felt bankrupt. And physically, I felt a little dull. I felt like I was always, you know, emotionally on the physical plane, a little anxious and a little jittery. And just in other areas, sluggish, not depressed necessarily, but not happy. And I just knew that I wasn't optimized for living my best life despite what everyone else might have perceived from the outside. Yeah, it's so interesting that you say not depressed necessarily, right? Because that's always where I get stuck explaining why I chose this route. Because for me, I just noticed that if I drank, if I went out with girlfriends, and it was my way of connecting, especially after my husband died, it was enjoyable to go out with girlfriends and what was happening is people were drinking. So I would opt in to the drinking. And the next day, 
I don't tend towards depression, knock on wood, but I would feel my whole energy depressed as a single mom, as somebody who was trying to get shit done in the world. I just felt everything like, but it's not depression as we culturally think of it. It just was, I was depressed from my usual state. Yes, exactly. It's just, you know, you're not yourself you or your full self or your best self. It just feels like this kind of cloud that's hanging over you. One of my girlfriends and I always used to call that hangover anxiety that everyone kind of cutely labels anxiety now. We called it the sadness. And the sadness was this feeling that we had the day after we drank. And it's so true. You, I just had this sense of remorse or regret or ickiness that was weighing on my life. Yeah. So those are the things that drive us to kind of wake up and realize, hmm, this is something I want to try, or maybe this isn't serving me. What happens then? Yeah. Well, what happens then is you have to start challenging your belief system and challenging your behaviors because your behaviors are backed up and kind of guided by your belief system. So the tricky thing about alcohol is most of us truly believe that It is what allows us to be social, connected, vulnerable, exciting, fun, whatever it is that you might have used alcohol to get at in a social or an emotional environment. And when we hold on to that belief, it makes it seem as though we can't get to those things if we're not drinking. But in reality, the only thing that you can't do without alcohol is be drunk. You can achieve happiness, calmness, you know, whatever it is that you're trying to get to, you can do that because you are a powerful human being. It's just that you're out of practice and you've used alcohol to cheat the system. So it's really starting to rewire that belief system that has caused you to go along with a story that you need alcohol and then also to couple that with changing your behaviors. But your behavior will be easier to change if you don't just wrestle with willpower, if you actually start to rewire that mindset that's driving the behavior as well. That's huge though, because we do think it's our crutch. And then I'm imagining there's a big shift that needs to occur, not just in the mindset. And I put just in air quotes here because that's huge to shift the mindset, but also to shift the potential judgment or what other people feel when you stop drinking and how they put pressure on you. So how do we navigate or help our clients and patients navigate that kind of decision when there's so much cultural pressure on doing what everybody is doing and it is the way we opt in? Yeah, totally. And that is a part that can be very confronting, but I'm going to give you two different realities. One is that people actually care a lot less about what you're doing in your life than you give them credit for. And we're so self-consumed in our own little world and our own little what-ifs that quite often, if you don't bring it up, people probably won't even notice that you're not drinking. It's not a huge deal. And if they do, you can create a really simple script to explain why in a very succinct way. You know, I like, hey, I'm actually not drinking right now because I don't like the way that I feel when I do. And I use an inarguable point. So no one can argue that I don't like the way that I feel because my feelings are my own, right? And if they do, if they were to say, oh, just have one, the second point comes into play. And that is, Their desire or their discomfort in the fact that I'm not drinking says nothing about me. It says something about them. And my responsibility isn't to make other people comfortable. It's to stay true to my goals. So that's fine. It says something about them. And if they persist with the nagging or with the peer pressure, which rarely I find happens, then the hard confronting part is 
that person does not have your best interest at heart and is probably not someone who you want to keep around for the long haul of the journey. Yeah, it's I've been using this term often and first I have to say like truth sister. Yes, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. true. I've been using this term often and it's actually the term that I flipped on its head to engage in these environments without engaging in the behaviors. So I asked myself, what can I opt into? And when I opted into leaning forward at the table, being a part of the conversation, nobody cared that I wasn't drinking. And I think what we have to get uncomfortable with, and you and I are probably more comfortable with this than maybe a lot of people are, but it's the fact that you're going to make other people uncomfortable, that just because of a choice you're making, it makes other people question their choices. And so the more we can support those who we're helping, our clients and patients, to recognize what's happening in those moments, the less pressured I'm sure it feels. Yeah. And also, you know, as a person who's been on the other side of the table or the chair or the whatever, revealing to a practitioner on my own that I was questioning this relationship with alcohol, if someone suggests that to you, even if it makes you uncomfortable, because there's probably people listening who this conversation itself is confronting, even though you're in the health and wellness space. And if someone reveals to you that they are questioning a behavior that doesn't make them feel good or they worry is holding them back in some way, I just really want to encourage everyone to be open to that. Because when I revealed that to my health practitioner, her response was, oh, well, you don't have a problem, so there's no real need to change. And it broke my heart a little bit because here was my confidant, my person who I was hoping would say, well, yeah, go for it. But because she didn't have any tools outside of the traditional language of recovery and addiction and having a problem, and because I didn't qualify for that, the only thing she knew to do was to say, oh, no, you don't need to quit drinking. And it was really discouraging to me because I really just wanted her and needed her to cheer for me in that moment. And she didn't. And that's of no fault on her own. But it really was a setback in my journey and my decision to quit drinking. That was ultimately the best decision I've ever made in my life. Yeah, it's so important. I mean, that idea that a practitioner only has the tools they have, right? So they can be gaslighting us without actually knowing it. And maybe it's not even their fault. It's their biases. It's what they understand. It's their lens. But what we then do with that and how it influences us is and does become our responsibility. And as practitioners, the more we can bring online our full understanding. Amanda, when you said, when you raised your hand, that's the moment to listen to. Yeah, absolutely. So behavior, we talked about belief systems. And next you said is changing the behavior. Do you have ways that you help us think through that? Yeah. So, you know, The popular way to change that behavior is the one-day-at-a-time approach, and I think that's very important for anyone who is in the addiction and recovery space. That's a a formula that has, has proven to work in many ways. I really think, though, for someone who's like me, who's high achieving, who's goal oriented, that one day at a time did not work because it was too small of a goal. I never investigated 12 steps because I didn't resonate with that language. So I needed something that was challenging yet achievable to help me get to the next space. And for me, saying one day as my goal made it too easy to give up on. So I started my journey with just a 30-day pure abstinence. I'm just not going to do this thing for 30 days. 
And as I got to a benchmark, the 30-day benchmark, I said, okay, I'm going to reevaluate this and I'm going to extend my goal. I'm going to stretch the goal. And so as I stretched the goal, I started adding on other behaviors that helped me to replace some of the things that are some of the extra time that I had been spending drinking or thinking about drinking or planning going out. And I really think that the more that we can couple the abstinence behavior with something that positively reinforces us to keep going or adds to our life is so beneficial. So one, stopping the thing that's holding you back, taking out the block, taking out, you know, in this case, alcohol, and then slowly but surely starting to replace it with things that bring you joy and actually elevate your life. Yeah, that's amazing and a great way to think about it, especially when we're motivated. And as you're talking, Amanda, I'm thinking about other decisions that people make electively as well that may not be like, oh, you don't have celiac disease, you don't need to take out gluten, but you know it doesn't make you feel good and it's holding you back. And so it really resonates deeply that we evaluate our life and make decisions that help us be the best we we can be. <laughs> yes. Yeah. What else don't we know about elective sobriety that we should be thinking about? Yeah. You know, the other thing that I think is so fascinating because you do speak to practitioners is that one of my largest clientele sets are people who are in the health and helping field who serve people every day. And because that is so exhausting to give to others every day that they loosen that up or they numb that sense of exhaustion out at the end of the day with a glass of wine. And so I would just, you know, I would speak to anyone who's maybe caught themselves in that habit and feeling, is feeling a little bit of imposter syndrome that I just want to like hold space for that person that I hear you, I see you. And I know that there's probably a part of you that knows that that's not the most productive thing for you to do, but it's become your escape mechanism. And I want to welcome anyone, either if that's you or it's a client who you're having that discussion with, to remind you that alcohol is cheating. It's not bad, wrong, or evil, but it's cheating. So alcohol doesn't reduce anxiety. It just delays your anxiety and makes your brain kind of dumb to the fact that it exists. It blinds you from the fact that it exists, and then it amplifies it on the other side. So if you're feeling overly emotional, if you're feeling drained, you're not getting rid of that feeling by drinking. You're just causing yourself to be unaware of it for a while. And that feeling is lingering. No matter what you do, it's not going to go away until you address it. And so to arm yourself with some tools or arm your clients with some tools to actually get through the thing they're hiding from with alcohol, be that a social barrier or an emotional one, is one of the biggest gifts that you can give yourself or someone you're working with. That's so powerful. And I know that we spoke about friends and environments and the stressors of work and that delaying of the relief. I'm wondering how you speak to people about familial situations with this, because it could be our birth families or our chosen families. But when there's a culture that we really identify with, how do we navigate that with a little bit more of the strength that we need? Family is always going to be the hardest discussion you come yes. up with in terms of any kind of healing, right? Like, bless their hearts. They were put here to be our teachers, and sometimes yes. the lesson is just feels brutal. 
Luckily, though, with your family, you can probably be a little more frank with them than you are at an average social engagement. But what I like to do is make sure that you're honest and upfront and you ask for their support and tell them it's a non-negotiable, especially if you have a family situation where, you know, I'm imagining like a big, beautiful Italian family where it's kind of pushed on you that you have to drink. Oh, it's the wine. It's the this. And Really having that conversation beforehand so that you can have, if you're going to a family event, having it beforehand with the people who you know are the hostesses or the host with the most, who's always trying to make everyone comfortable and saying, you know, I want to tell you that I'm not going to drink. And if you could help me and support me in that decision while we're at this engagement, I would feel really loved by that. And communicating that to them beforehand so they know what's up. And not trying to do it in the moment where you probably don't have the mental bandwidth to have the conversation and it's not the right place. So even though it's vulnerable to do it beforehand, I really recommend that if you are trying to navigate a conversation where you're giving up anything that's fundamental to your family element, right? Even the same thing with gluten, that you have this conversation beforehand to where you don't have to try and explain it on the spot. It's going to encapsulate the conversation. And if there is any argument or back and forth or peer pressuring, it's going to put it in a little box that happened before the event rather than having this awkward, weird, strange conversation right in the heat of things. It's not going to help anyone. Yeah, so important and so well said. Before I let you go, Amanda, I'm wondering if you don't mind sharing your biggest lesson and maybe your hardest lesson on this journey of elective sobriety for yourself? Oh, absolutely. You know, my biggest lesson was that you don't have to have a problem with alcohol for it to be a problem in your life. And alcohol has zero nutritional value. I know people who would argue that it has social value, but I think that the biggest lesson I had to learn is that the social value it brings into your life is fake. The vulnerability, the personality, the person who you are as a drinker is not the real you. As much as you would like to believe that it brings out the best version of you and quiets down the worst version of you, it's a lie because the best version of you is who you show up as. Be that an awkward, wounded, weird individual, that's what makes you endearing. And learning to lean into that and being comfortable in your own authenticity is the real power. And wow, that was so hard for me to face because, you know, I started drinking as a 17-year-old girl who felt gawky and awkward and weird. And I thought that alcohol was the thing that gave me this you know, Carrie Bradshaw effect is what I called it. I thought it transformed me into a fabulous, fun, sexy woman. And she was in there all along. I just hadn't tried hard enough and learned the skills that I needed to bring her out. And every time I turned to alcohol as my ineffective solution, I was just stunting my growth and giving myself a deeper learning curve. And I was capable of learning to do all those things myself. Am I perfect at it? Is no. Is it sometimes hard? Yes. But all of those things are in there. I just was cheating. And when you cheat, you don't learn. Mm, So well said, Amanda. Thank you for the work you're doing in this arena. I can't wait to read the book. And I look forward to continuing our conversations. Oh, thank you so much. It was such a pleasure to be here. The 15-Minute Matrix is hosted and produced by me, Andrea Nakayama, and the Functional Nutrition Alliance. The podcast is edited and mixed by Brian Paik of Pacific Audio, and special thanks to Natalie Merrill, Alia Hale, Pamela Geismar, and Rowan Bradley for their support in making the 15-Minute Matrix possible. 
You can find episodes on all kinds of topics with more incredible guests at our podcast website, 15minutematrix.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to see the completed functional nutrition matrix that accompanies today's or any episode, be sure to head over to the podcast website. Again, that's 15minutematrix.com. We love when you share our episodes with your friends and colleagues, leave a review and rate the show. That helps us to grow our collective message that functional nutrition is the future of healthcare. Also, be sure to follow us on Instagram at Functional Nutrition Alliance, and you can follow me at Andrea Nakayama. And if you or someone you know is interested in becoming a functional nutrition counselor, head over to fxnutrition.com to learn more about our Full Body Systems program. Full Body Systems is our 10-month immersion course where you'll learn the systems-based approach to addressing the root causes of your clients' issues through client education, diet, and lifestyle modification. Again, you can always learn more at fxnutrition.com.